The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. To discover other amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Dave Berta was recorded virtually, and we had a little bit of audio problems, so you're going to hear a few little glitchy artifacts here and there. I think you can still catch the meaning, and I hope it won't disrupt your listening experience, but thanks for hanging in there and listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Michael Jans. And I'm Adam Rosenhart. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, December 1st, 2019, and I am thrilled to be joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. Nice to see you. And special guest, Michael Jans. On this episode, we're going to focus on the politics of Alberta education and more specifically the impact of the United Conservative Party government's budget on the education system in our province. But before we get started, we wanted to announce that the third annual Best of Alberta Politics survey is being launched later this week. So go to daveberta.ca and vote for your picks for Alberta's best MLA, best cabinet minister, best opposition critic, and up-and-coming MLA to watch. The first round of voting starts next week, and the second and final round will take place the week after that. So now to our special guest. Michael Jans is a longtime friend of the pod. I think this is the second time we've had you on, Michael, uh, and a prominent public education advocate and school board trustee in Edmonton. So welcome back to the Dave Berta podcast, Michael. So before we jump into the budget and the impact of the Alberta government's latest budget on education. Let's just try to lay some groundwork for the listeners. Uh, So we have a minister of education, a department of education. We have a public Catholic and Francophone elected school board trustees across the province. We have principals, we have teachers and support workers, and then, and we have students. So Michael, could, could you please try, just try to give me a snapshot of how, the education system works in Alberta today. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share about this. So um, in Alberta, there's uh, 150,000 students in the K-12 education system. So 95% of those students are educated in the public Catholic and Francophone systems, which uh, Alberta considers to be the, the quote-unquote public system. So Francophone and public are included in that mix. The remaining 5% are divided between private schools, homeschooling situations and charter schooling. So the vision is 100 years ago when Alberta um, first had the Alberta, uh, the Alberta Act, uh, the vision is was there would be an accessible, universal, fee-free public education experience for all children, no matter what community you live in, wherever you are, you should have access to a public education opportunity. If you were a Catholic, that was uh, through a separate school board. If you were a Protestant, it was through the public school board. And if you were of a Francophone minority, you also had that opportunity. So since then, um, it has proceeded. So uh, like public health care, it's universal in access. Um, there's been some boundaries, though. We're talking about kindergarten to grade 12. Childcare, for example, is your responsibility. So for somebody like myself who has a toddler, I pay almost $1,200 a month in childcare. Um, this, is, uh, this is an example of public policy decisions where uh, we had to draw a line somewhere. In Ontario, uh, they also have a similar system with public Catholic and Francophone school boards, but they also have a $0 subsidy going to the private schools. So if you opt out of the public system and go to a private school, 
uh, experience. You won't receive a public subsidy. You'll have to pay for it your, yourself, but you will have uh, tax credits. So in Alberta, we've made a decision that it's about collective investment. It's about public education being the cornerstone to our democracy, uh, that all everyone, no matter who your mommy or daddy is, should have the same opportunity to a K-12 experience. And it's something that we as the whole Alberta populace have benefited from, just like our public highways, just like our forest fighter protections, vaccinations. Public education has been one of those institutions that we've all believed that um, it's good for the bee, but it's good for the beehive. And so we all want to uh, invest together. So um, Alberta education has been lauded as one of the best jurisdictions in the world to educate your children. We compete with Singapore and Finland for generally the best in the world. We have strong assurance mechanisms, a great curriculum, well-respected teachers, great schools and investments in the system. And it's something I think we should be very, very proud of. Um, we should be fighting extremely hard to defend it, and we should be excited about that. One of the components of this system is the idea of local autonomy, that locally elected school boards are the systems managers for the local jurisdictions. For example, in Edmonton, if you go to the public system or the Catholic system, you have a locally elected school board that makes this for your community. They decide the buses, the budgets, the building, and they have a strong influence on what happens in those schools. When it comes to what is being taught... We have a centralized curriculum through the Alberta Education, through the Department of Education, that ensures that wherever you are in Alberta, if you're taking grade nine, for instance, you're learning generally the same things wherever you are. So that ensures some sort of a consistency and accountability. And as well, we have a, a whole standardized test system. So generally, the um, um, an, an Alberta diploma is uh, like, like I would say, a Canadian $20 bill, that there's a, a, a strong assurance that you know somebody with an Alberta diploma has had the same education, has had the same rigor, has experienced the same curriculum, has demonstrated the same outcomes wherever you are in Alberta. Okay, that's, that's, that's a super interesting uh, uh, overview of the system. So thank, thank you. Thanks for that. I, I think in particular, I think it's interesting uh, explaining the difference between what the role of school boards are and what the role of elected school board trustees are compared to what the role of the Department of Education is. And I find with a lot of the discussion we have around edu public education in this province, there's a lot of blurring of the lines in terms of, of understanding uh, who has responsibility over what in terms of what do elected school board trustees do and what do uh, what does the Minister of Education do, do? And I mean, we have two, I mean, two systems where, uh, where provincially MLAs are elected and the government that form, or the, the, the party that forms government uh, gets to choose and appoint a Minister of Education. And at the same time, we have elections happening at a local level during the municipal elections where public and Catholic trustees are elected. And I, I find sometimes that, that the, uh, there's an overlap in terms of what what they run, what the the uh, the parties or what the trustees run on. People running for school board trustee don't always run on on things that totally fall within their uh, within their their portfolio or within within their mandate, but but can be kind run on kind of aspirational points in their platform. And I think that uh, why well, I think that's great. I think it also kind of it can it, it, it tends to confuse uh, people who are. Even even people who are paying attention to politics in in Alberta, so I I think that's 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 quite interesting, and I think with this with this government and and with past governments, the the role of the public school board will be or the role of elected school board trustees, um, kind of changes politically depending on on what's more uh, 
what's more politically convenient for uh, for uh, the provincial government. Yeah, I would go a step further and say it also um, varies in terms of uh, uh, when parents think about the education at a local school. A parent in Alberta can take a general, uh, can feel comfort that no matter what elementary school they're attending, whether it's in Lloydminster or Didsbury or, well, at the Alberta side of Lloydminster, <laughs> Didsbury, Medicine Hat, or Edmonton, that generally, if they are in a K-6 school, they're learning the same things. So the, the, unique, the school may have a unique culture or a different program, um, but generally there is a strong standardization and consistency across Alberta. And this isn't from the NDP or the PCs. This has been happening for, I would say, the last 50 years. So generally, there's been a drive uh, across systems around the world looking for kind of a standardization and competence from um, uh, incompetencies rather from the uh, different um, different communities. And I think communities have been looking for that insurance. Employers want to know that when you have a grade 12 diploma in Alberta that uh, you are capable at these sorts of things and you've demonstrated learning in these sorts of areas. So um, it's something that, uh, yeah, I, when I talk to the grade six classes uh, at in civics, I talk to them about the idea that a school board might have a conversation around there shall be a French immersion program. The administration of the school board will say, we think it should be at this site. The Ministry of Education will say, we think a version program should have to ensure that these competencies are met, and these minutes are met, and these, these other specific outcomes are met. And then the parents will say, we will consider supporting the French immersion program to uh, in the following ways, such as fundraising resources, such as et cetera, et cetera. So um, really it is a, um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a system and it depends on the cooperation of various actors working together to ensure the best outcomes uh, for kids. And it's constantly evolving. Even in the 10 years I've been a trustee, I've seen some programs dwindle. I've seen some other programs rise in support and um, uh, the classroom is ever changing. And um, ultimately the thing I always say it, to parents when they call me and ask about the educational quality of a, a school, I, I say, have you talked to the classroom teacher? Because ultimately when it comes down to every single minute of every single day, the number one uh, factor impacting your child's learning is, is the classroom teacher. So having that strong relationship with excellent teachers and excellent classrooms, I think cannot be understated in this high level conversation. So in terms of, of, of how, just going back to uh, uh, locally elected school boards. So public school boards are nonpartisan. So you're, it's kind of like a town council or a city council. As you, everybody, everyone who's elected to a to a school board uh, as a trustee is elected on an individual basis on their own merit. Um, and explain to me if just just before we move on to talking about the provincial budget, like a town council or a city council or a county council, the the individual who correct me if I'm wrong, but the individual who reports to the school board is the superintendent, and that's kind of would be a similar situation to if a um, uh, a city manager or a town manager reporting to a, a city council or a town council? Yes, absolutely. Technically, the trustees have one employee, and that's the superintendent of schools. Um, the The board of trustees are uh, political actors elected by the community. I said political, not partisan. So, for example, on the Edmonton Public School Board, we had one trustee last term who contested a UCP nomination. We have other trustees who are um, supporters of the NDP or the Alberta Party or generally just stay out of it altogether. But they're all there with a shared fiduciary duty, not just to um, their own constituency or their own area, but to all of the 104,000 
and students of Edmonton Public Schools. They're elected by a from a specific uh, from a specific parcel, but they're elected on behalf of all of the kids in the system in the city of Edmonton. So um, we all we all get uh, together and try and decide what's best for kids, regardless of of partisan outcome. And I think that's why even when you in Calgary Public, for instance, you saw trustees who in the last municipal election where a majority of the board was elected by a slate that was affiliated with the UCP. Um, many of those trustees now are speaking out against the education cuts and are very concerned about what the outcomes are for Calgary Public because that's their duty. They're there to defend and to speak on behalf of and to marshal resources for um, Calgary Public Schools. And so you see this. So it's um, mm -hmm. it's very interesting. It's quite complicated. In some ways, it's a, a, a bit of an inheritance from the last century, but there's a, um, still a lot of value that it provides. And I think it's one potential check and balance to the actions of this government that I'll be talking about later on. But uh, um, And I think that's why you've seen the government demonstrate a little bit of hostility towards school board actors who have questioned their agenda. Well, and the kind of the two two of the key central players, at least in the legislature, uh, during the uh, debates around education and the impact of the provincial budget on education are two former school board trustees. And I'm talking about Adriana Lagrange, who's the Minister of Education, and she was a, trust, a trustee with the Red Deer Catholic School District up until the last the 2019 election, and the NDP's uh, official opposition education critic, Sarah Hoffman, who was in the previous government was deputy deputy premier and minister of health, but before that um, was a, a trustee and chair of the Edmonton Public School Board. So, in this kind of in this provincial situation where we're where we're debating um, we're debating uh, the impact of of this provincial budget on the education system. I mean, you have two people who have been intimately involved with the decision making uh, for um, for the major public school boards in their communities. Um, so it's an interesting, in, interesting scenario when you look at at where you know where they where where the two uh, two main education players in the uh, in the legislature come from, and and just the type of expertise that they bring with them to this debate. This episode of the Dave Burdick podcast is brought to you by Unit B Coworking. Unit B is a multi-company co-working space focused on helping people pursue their passions and making Edmonton its creative best. Join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and established organizations all dedicated to getting things done. Besides desks and offices, Unit B offers members access to its podcasting studio and meeting spaces, as well as a kitchen, Wi-Fi, and the usual amenities. It's located in the historic McKinney Building on 104th Street, close to everything downtown, including the Bay LRT station. Book a tour at Unit B. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, your source for curiosity-driven coverage of our city cultivated by the community. Taproot publishes a weekly media roundup sharing the latest news, events, openings, and updates on media, public relations, and communications in Edmonton. It's curated by Linda Huang, a well-known communicator with experience in both journalism and communications, and host of the Don't Call Me a Guru podcast, which is a fellow member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Subscribe to the Media Roundup for free at taprootedmonton.ca. So we've talked about the system. We've talked about some of the main players. Uh, how does this budget, how, how do you think this, this, 
you, the, this, this budget impacts the education system in Alberta. Are, are there actually cuts? And this, this is something we've heard the, um, the, the premier dispute that there actually aren't cuts happening and the Minister of Education uh, argue that there aren't actually cuts in this budget. But what, what does this actually mean for school boards on, a, on, a ground, on the ground level? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, my first retort is something cheeky about, you know, war is <laughs> slavery is freedom. Like the idea that there are not cuts here is, abs uh, is an absolute falsehood on the part of this government and this minister and this premier. There are cuts. There are massive cuts. Uh, the ATA, for instance, has looked at potentially $293 million in terms of a shortfall that is not in the education budget this year. The the part that's critical to to represent is not just um not just the cuts that have taken place, but the lack of growth that has been uh, not funded as well. Too, we've seen fifteen thousand new students added to education this year. That's that's uh um that's like eight new high schools added to the education system in Alberta without one additional dollars, one additional dollar. There have been. Um, there's been some creative bookkeeping on the part of the government to be able to say that there's no cuts because we've seen three major grants, like for example, the class size funding um, that have been cut, that have been removed, and school boards across Alberta are seeing massive shortfalls. Calgary Public, for instance, is having to lay off 300 staff. Edmonton Public, we're going to be seeing massive hits next year too. We were fortunate this year we had a small surplus that we could cushion ourselves, um, that we could, but that's been all eliminated as of Tuesday. It's all been spent. So um, but let's take a couple steps back here. Let's look at the UCP budget in general, because I think it's important to frame the education expenditure in the broader narrative of the, of the UCP uh, agenda. So the UCP got elected running a campaign that's a way to or increase funding for education. That was their platform. So they absolutely have not done that at the time whenever anybody said, no, there's going to be cuts, you can't do that. I recall I was besmirched as an activist trustee for questioning um, the potential job losses that could be encountered. Uh, and uh, but, the, but sure enough, as the budget has played out, it has been massive cuts. So uh, your listeners who are astute political uh, observers know that the two largest provincial expenditures are health and education. So if the government does not want to raise taxes, does not want to do a GST, does not want to do consumption taxes, if they want to reduce taxes on the wealthiest Albertans and return to a flat tax, if they want to give up the carbon tax revenue, if they want to enact a $4.5 billion tax cut, if they're basically going to be hemorrhaging money out of the revenue side of the budget, then costs must be recovered somewhere. So I think it's important to think about this when the government is trying to enact on their left hand an austerity agenda without tax increases, naturally something has to get cut to bring us to balance on the right hand. So the I think it's really important to think about that, about the choices here. Why are we seeing layoffs for teachers, for nurses, for all uh, increasing costs for post-secondary students, increasing costs in municipalities, um, more school fees coming from school boards for transportation and other pieces. Um, so I think it's really important to think about that, about the cost recovery. So. Um, for me, doing this for 10 years now, um, the UCP actions are fundamentally a shift in vision. So, for example, I remember when I was board chair or I was board vice chair, we would get phone calls from the ministry or the chief of staff of the ministry back in the Hancock, the Johnson, the Lukasik years. And they would kind of tell us that, listen, like we're in a tough time right now. Revenue is down. We need to freeze or we need to cut 
but always they assured us when the good times were better, money would be coming back. Mm-hmm. So we always knew that, you know, they supported the institution of public education. But now we're seeing this isn't the case. It's a direct move and a transition against the institution of public education towards more of an individualistic American style. It's a restructuring and dismantling of the public education system that I think will have fundamental generational changes for public education as we know it. Um, I think the last time I was on your podcast, the message I kept hammering home was you don't get to Alabama overnight. I think the UCP vision is that they can take that 95% of students who are in public Catholic and Francophone school boards, and they can increase the number that are going to privates and charters, and they can help transition our way from uh, our system from a very, very successful public education system to one that is more of a private good like childcare. Like I said at the outset, I pay $2 a month in childcare. I think there's some supporters who say, well, I don't, some UCB supporters who say, well, I don't have children in schools. Why can't Michael just pay $1,200 a month for K to 12 education like he does for childcare? I think this is a, uh, it's it's uh, boiling the frog slowly uh, and moving us towards an American style system. Now this will be by some listeners dismissed as hy- hyperbolic rhetoric, but when you look at the, the the budget cuts, when you look at the funding increases for privates and charter schools, when you look at the greater support for for other other systems aside from the, the public schools, when you see the privatization in school buildings, the P3 models creeping back, this is a step, this is a budget that is designed not to spend one more penny, one more penny on the public system and to restructure the Alberta education system altogether that is favorable towards an American-style privatization, an individualist model that if you want your kid to pay to go to French immersion, you should have to pay more. You should have to make that choice. If you want your kid to go to this particular private school, you should have to do the same. So um, there were lots of shocks in the provincial budget. Um, We knew it would be bad. We were expecting austerity, but in fact, it was actually twice as bad as we thought. And I'm one thing I'm I, I think it's rippling across the sector. I'm shocked that the ATA, for instance, didn't declare or enact a work to rule policy immediately when this budget came out. Uh, this is going to cripple the profession of 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 teaching. It's going to uh, cause irreparable harm to the institutions. These these cuts are massive. They're really going to hurt, in particular, the kids in the urban areas, the ones with more special needs, the ones with more hardship, the kids in poverty. This is going to be um, a one, two, three knockout punch for some of our families. And uh, it's, it's absolutely grim. I spent this past week um, speaking with 20 different principals in Edmonton and hearing this impact that school counselors and success coaches and others have made. But now... Now schools in Edmonton are forecasting eight to ten percent cuts next year. Now, if you do the math on that, uh, and we're in 90, 95 plus percent of our dollars go into staffing, and in our district there's nine thousand four hundred employees. So you guys are smart. Tell me what a ten percent cut of nine thousand four hundred is, and that's what we could be looking at for for layoffs next year. So uh, I'm glad to see that the ATA is encouraging teachers to wear red on Fridays, but uh, I'm shocked that this isn't. This wasn't uh, more of a, uh, a animated response on their part. And I think what the government may be underestimating is the impact of uh, our support staff. So our support staff are mm-hmm. the, 
not just the people at the front of house at the schools, but also the educational assistants. Now we have more and more special needs kids across the system in, in, in school districts today, not just in Edmonton, Calgary, but, but everywhere. And if support staff, if they go on strike, uh, the classrooms are untenable, they're unsafe, teachers will not proceed. I think when Ed Edmonton Catholic a few years ago had a support staff strike, they literally had to shut down the school district. So you tell me if, 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 there's, a, if there's a work stoppage of some kind in Edmonton and 104,000 Edmonton public kids and 40 something thousand Edmonton Catholic kids now can't go to school all week, what's that going to do to the productivity? What's that going to do to the workforce? What's that going to do to um, the reception of the UCP? in Edmonton. I mean, I don't think, I think parents will be saying, get that recall legislation going as soon as possible because we're coming for Casey Madu. I feel like the, the UCP has been really good at directing people's anger or deflecting their anger. Do you, maybe this is naive of me, but do you truly believe that people will uh, rise up and speak out, Michael? Or, or is everyone so exhausted from this, what appears to be a strategy of uh, carpet bombing people with all these cuts? Do you think you think people will actually say we've had enough? I'm hearing more and more from parents all the time who say, what can we do? And I and I say, you know, I'm a humble school trustee. I can't tell you what to do, but I, I think you should write a letter. And they say, I'm done with letters. I want to do something more. And I just came from a meeting this afternoon with some teachers who call themselves the radical educators. And uh, I'd encourage you to look, listeners to look them up. They are done with, they're done with working through uh, formal structures like the ATA, et cetera. I think we're seeing student movements that are popping out outside of the the, the students. And um, uh, I think we're going to be, uh, we're going to be seeing more and more parents and other folks organizing outside of traditional civil society structures to try and say no to this, that they've had enough. I think the, the, UCP budget was absolute. When we when we ask ourselves the question, who benefits? Uh, billionaires and Springbank is basically the the easiest question that comes the answer that comes to mind. Because if they if the U, if the NDP had been elected, the deficit would be two billion lower. It's not there. Um, it's it's basically the husky oils, the wealthy corporations, some of the top one percent who have benefited from this budget. I think it's it's um. It's no understatement to say this this budget is is class warfare and the education budget is absolutely classroom warfare. It's going to hurt so many students, staff and families. And I think families are fed up with it more and more. I'm hearing buying buyer's remorse from community members who told me they voted UCP because they want to change because they took solace when people said, Kenny, you're a radical. His people said, no, 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 we're not going to touch social conservative issues. When they said, Kenny, you're going to cut education. He said, no, 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 we're going to maintain or increase funding to education. That was in their platform. And now when rubber hits the road and we're at the budget, we're seeing $293 million worth of cuts to education and heartbreaking stories throughout our province, urban, rural, public, Catholic, even the, even the Catholic trustees are very, very frustrated with the Choice in Education Act that they're bringing through. This is a, as, as Dave wrote on his blog, this is an ideological experiment that they're trying to carry through. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that there is a, a real commitment in this government to an ideological project in a way that we haven't seen from conservative governments here in Alberta in the past. This isn't about just about uh, balancing the budget or uh, it's, not, it's not just about eliminating the deficit or eliminating the debt, as you could argue that uh, Ralph Klein's vision was, was you know, where, where they had this kind of short-term vision in the 90s of, of eliminating the deficit and then paying down the debt, and then they didn't really know what to do next. And and you could argue that that Ralph Klein really lost the narrative after the debt, after he held up that big sign that said debt paid in full. Um, he hung around for the next six years, but no one really knew why. 
um, or in the next four years, but no one really knew why, because he didn't really have a have a program or have an agenda. With with, with this government, I, and you saw it in the UCP, but the UCP's uh, election platform uh, in the spring, and you saw it again in the uh, the report that was prepared by former Saskatchewan cabinet minister Janice McKinnon uh, over the summer. That there is a there 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 certainly is a commitment to not only just not just do the kind of traditional conservative pay down the debt, uh, uh, pay down the deficit, uh, balance the books, but there's there's a commitment uh, to basically reshape Alberta. And I mean, we see this in in uh, across the board in terms of the privatization agenda that the that the UCP is talking about. We see this in terms of healthcare, in terms of education. I mean, last just at the end of last week, there was an announcement by. Uh, the the Alberta government and various government uh, agency employers that there would be uh, almost seven or eight thousand uh, public sector workers laid off over the next three years, um, and in terms of education, I mean we see this with the talk about charter schools. We see it with the talk about introducing more private schools and and the the rumors that we're hearing about the Choice in Education Act that's expected to come in the spring and about whether that will um, whether that will enshrine in legislation funding. For private schools in Alberta, and right now, public or private schools are funded, I believe, up to seventy percent per student, which is which is uh, incredibly high. Especially, and and private schools range from from small private religious schools and or, or alternative education schools, uh, all the way to more elite schools that charge up to tens of thousands of dollars in annual t- tuition. So, so th- there there really is a, a wide range there, but but there are uh, a number of schools that that. Are quite elite that benefit from this program uh, almost to the to the detriment of, of of the public education system, I would say. Um, but I guess what's what's most concerning is that um, this is, I, I, as you said, Michael, about previous conservative education ministers. It doesn't seem like there's a there's a commitment to go back and and refund um, uh, increase funding into the public education system. They've they've made clear that they that they don't want to look at government revenue. Uh, Finance Minister Travis Taves has said that, quote, Alberta doesn't have the luxury. We don't have we don't have the luxury of trying to diversify our economy. So, you know, while we're pouring, while the government is kind of putting all their ducks, all their all their eggs uh, in uh, in the oil and gas sector and, and, and promoting the oil and gas sector, which is one, basically what they ran on. Um, you have public services that appear to be hurting because of that and public services that are going to be put on the chopping block because of that and public sector jobs that are going to be put on the chopping block because the government uh, doesn't really want to have a serious conversation about how we uh, how we raise revenue in this province how the government raises revenue and and our over-reliance on oil and gas and and this isn't something that's just unique to the to the united conservative party i mean that not wanting to have that debate the progressive conservatives kind of didn't really deal with uh with the revenue problems that uh, that that, that the Alberta government has during their 44 year, or, or at least the last 20 years of, of their 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 tenure in government, and and the NDP didn't really fix that problem either. So it's this kind of perennial issue. But but the UCP seems to be taking things a, a step further in terms of the kind of ideological commitment to uh, to reshaping Alberta in a more conservative, a more individualist, uh, a more private kind of free market uh, focused system. And I think part of the ridiculousness of that, though, is private schools are only an option for you if you live in some of the urban areas where they can sustain a private school. So Calgary, for example, has a lot of private schools. 
Um, if you live in rural Alberta in a small community where your public school is in decline, you have fewer students, you may want quote unquote choice in education, creating a private school in your area will not give you more choice in education. All it will do is further fracture the community public school in your area. It's actually public school trustees and rural Alberta school trustees who have been the most vociferously opposed to this idea of quote unquote choice because they talk about how by trying to give more choice to parents, you're actually undermining and harming the choice that we can provide for students in the classroom. We have some rural school boards that can only offer math in the first half year. Real material consequences for a lot of rural school trustees. So I think what's interesting is this idea that the rich people in Calgary who live in Springbank, who can afford 30,000 a year to send their kids to an elite private school, they get a corporate tax cut, they avoid paying the, uh, the flat, they now are back to the flat tax. They're doing pretty good and they're excited by the idea of choice in education and a protection of what's theirs but as i come back to this budget is ab it's it's absolutely a division between the rich people and the rest of us and i think we're seeing that that the 95 percent of people who send their kids to public catholic or francophone school boards are about to get hammered with more school fees more bus fees more cuts to service bigger class sizes i I, my heart breaks for those families with special needs kids, with children with exceptional learning challenges, the English language learners, and make no mistake, this is going to have a material um, uh, deterioration in our achievement test results, in our, in our PISA test results, in all of these other areas by cutting the systems that have produced such wonderful results for Alberta, you're going to see a decline in these test scores. And what worries me is that's just going to be turned around by the minister and said, well, since public education is in decline on these test scores, because who knew a teacher can't teach 35 special needs kids at once, we're going to then go and further entrench a privatization agenda because public education is not working. Therefore, we need more privatization. So it's 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 um, the, the ministry is by design through this class war budget putting us into a negative feedback loop that'll lead us to more privatization and a kind of Americanization of, uh, of, of, our, of our education system in Alberta. So um, for the longtime friends of the pod and listeners, I strongly encourage them to go back and watch season four of The Wire. In some ways, it is the most uh, insightful education into some of the structural challenges that occur within a public education system. But when I, when I talk to kids today, to your point, Dave, they want to talk about climate change. They want to talk about what their economic prospects are. They they think even that if we have another oil boom in Alberta, which I think we all hope that we have, we hope there's one more boom, they're pretty, they're pretty astute. And they know it's probably going to be a jobless boom. You're going to see more and more of those jobs automated. You're going to see more AI. We already see dump truck, robot dump trucks working in the oil sands round the clock. Hundreds of jobs that are not being replaced. Husky oil, everybody else doing, taking the corporate tax cut, turning it into shareholder profit and doing layoffs. Even if there's another boom, even our most elite and excited undergrads who come out of post-secondary education with all that um, nice, healthy student debt, um, they're going to be really struggling to find 
some employment that hasn't already been automated. Like we are going to be facing systemic shifts, not just in not just in our our our, our climate and our environment, but also in the economic structures that are um, out of our economy. And much smarter people than I have talked about this, but our education system and our education minister is not addressing any of that. I, I've been struggling over the last few days since I was agreed to come on the pod to think of something that I could actually say this minister has done to improve public education and in Alberta. And I can't I can't think of one single thing. So speaking about looking to the future and looking at, I mean, curriculum has been a big thing that this government, I mean, we're kind of straying away from the budget for, uh, for a second, but I mean, I thought in, in terms of, of talking about the this particular Minister of Education, Adriana Lagrange, I mean, curriculum has been something that uh, the UCP going back to when they were an opposition party, even you talk about the Wild Rose and the Progressive Conservatives when they were in opposition to the NDP. I mean, there was a constant, um, a constant line from the opposition that uh, the NDP were introducing an ideological left wing. I mean, even think the ter- even the term Marxist was used um, uh, agenda into politicizing the curriculum, politicizing what students what what Alberta students were being taught. And we saw over last week, um, Adrienne Lagrange and uh, Calgary Fish Creek MLA Richard Godfrey had an exchange in the legislature about a. Uh, a, a question from a multiple choice test at a school in Calgary. We, I don't think we really know what school it is. We don't know where the test, who gave, who, who gave the test to, to Richard Godfrey. Um, but he got this sheet of paper and, and we've since seen uh, PDF, PDF of it floating around, but it, but it talked about um, arguments, identifying arguments uh, against the development of the oil sands. And from what I understand, it was trying to, it was uh, a test trying to uh, teach critical thought, trying to teach uh, irony, trying to teach students how to identify different arguments from different points of view. Um, And the minister jumped on it right away. The UCP sent out a, uh, sent out tweets with memes, attacking, basically attacking teachers really um, for trying to promote anti-oil sands development. And, and I, I said I sent out a tweet to Adrian Lagrange right after I saw that, basically saying that acknowledging that there are individuals in this world, that there are people in this world who oppose the development of the oil sands doesn't necessarily mean that you oppose, oppose the development of the oil sands. But but this goes back to, I think, I mean, it's the key character, the key uh, message of this government is everything revolves around oil and gas. Uh, even if it means, even if they can find a way uh, to attack public education system, um, attack the Alberta Teachers Association, attack public school boards or, or other school board trustees, or basically their opponents. Um, and I do I do find that troubling. And I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast before. I, I think that one of the one of the biggest challenges facing Alberta is that in, in, into the future, I mean, when we talk about climate change, is that, I mean, it might not necessarily even be climate change itself, in, in the immediate future, I think it's the public a public opinion around climate change. I think that we really risk in this province becoming increasingly isolated politically on the issue of climate change. And the longer we have a government in this province that doesn't want to deal with the realities that we're facing, that the climate is changing, that the temperatures are increasing, and that it will be having an impact, or it is having an impact and will be having an increasing impact um, on how we live our lives, on our environment, on our air, on our water, on everything. Um, the 
the more likely it is that we're going to be having we're going to have solutions imposed onto us uh, from whether it be Ottawa, whether it be other provinces, um, British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, other provinces that 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 wanted to actually want to deal with climate change. Um, so it, it does continue to be troubling, and and this kind of rhetoric around ending the politicization of curriculum, taking politics out of the classroom. Um, it, I mean, I don't, you know, <laughs> this whole idea that politicians can take politics out of the classroom, it's just, they, they want to change the type of politics or they want to introduce the t a, a new type of politics that, 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 uh, uh, that they want to be debated. Um, and anyway, I, as, just as a kind of political, uh, political tactic, I find it troubling. Um, and certainly something that's being used to undermine, uh, the independence of the of the public education system from the type of of political message of the day that whatever what that whichever government wants to push forward. I agree with you, Dave, and I think it's part of a broader, more insidious systemic problem that this government's enacting, and that's the removal of any sort of check and balance or control on the government. So the most obvious example is the firing of the ethics commissioner, um, but it's also, for example, so. Um, attacking a professor at a post-secondary institution who's who they disagreed with, attacking, like they threatened to fire the Calgary Public School Board. They've threatened to basically um, uh, neuter most of the municipalities and other organizations um, who the mayors, councillors can't speak out, teachers who are considered trusted spokespeople in the community. They're trying to paint them with this brush of being anti-oil sands. I think it's it's part of this broader attempt to basically take a shotgun to all of the, civ the traditional civil society structures that exist to check and balance any opposition to government in education. For example, they removed the class size of reporting requirements. Now, class size reporting requirements have been a long uh, a long time barometer of the funding and the health of the education system. Are they a perfect metric? No, but in general, it's been a chance to see how the dollars are flowing to the classroom. So I think it's it's part of this. If you stick your head up, you're going to get your head cut off. And I think they're trying to um, uh, basically make an example of some of the folks like Calgary Public Trustees who said, hey, we're going to have to lay off 300 staff. What did they do? They called in the auditors. They're threatening to fire the school board. The minister is is sending a message to the other 60 school boards saying, if you think about doing this and you don't full responsibility for it, you're going to be fired too. I think the ATA and some of the unions are so scared right now of speaking up for their members for fear that the government will make union membership voluntary. We're hearing that from post-secondary students, same thing, that if the post-secondary students don't post for the photo ops, they're going to be, um, uh, their power are going to be removed by, uh, it's going to be voluntary membership now for post-secondary institutions. So for me, where I stand, I actually support voluntary membership in any way because it's actually has the unintended consequence of many of these institutions actually having to, they become more radical. They become more uh, animated in their responses in terms of de de uh, demonstrating results and value for their members. We've seen this in the states where some of the Tea Party Republican um, leadership have tried to enact voluntary membership in unions. Well, what happens? You get an even more militant, aggressive union speaking up for the members because they have no vested interest in trying to appease the government. They're out there to speak on behalf of their members and they know where their bread is buttered. So actually you see 
some of these groups it's actually government's worst nightmare the fact that the fact that the government has so um over over the last 25 years so effectively co-opted many of the spokespeople in our society to be part of their agenda has been uh i i i think one of their one of their successes and it's held the sort of the general labor civil society movements at bay so um it's it's going to be very troubling going forward but i think it's it's a uh i encourage your listeners always not to just get sucked into one debate about the test question but to question the the broader premise of why that test was leaked by the government right now in that instance why it can't be provided what are they trying to distract from one of the most insightful educational experiences i've had in my career has been attending a manning center training um and tom flanagan taught taught us about dead cat theory this was the idea that if you're in government, something's going wrong, you take out a dead cat and you put it on the table. Because what happens? People aren't talking about job losses. People aren't talking about anything else. They're just saying, holy moly, there is a dead cat on the table. And they're now talking about the dead cat. They're now talking about that social studies test. They're not talking about the fact that on Tuesday, the second largest school board in Alberta forecasted they might be losing 940 jobs next year. Okay, well, I'll try not to focus on, on, the, on the dead cats too much again, but that, that, that's actually quite a good point. Um, and very interesting to hear that you went to a, a Manning Center training, uh, uh, training uh, session, Michael. <laughs> I was a UCP member. I voted for Brian Jean in the leadership. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, UCP member uh, uh, Michael Jans. Um, so, I mean, you talk about. I mean, I, th I think part of the agenda, part of the 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 agenda for introducing or increasing private the number of private schools in this province, expanding charter schools in this province, is. Uh, an attempt to weaken the teachers union. And I think we saw this, I mean, you talk about Americanization and I mean, I don't like to use the term Americanization uh, one, very much, but but because I think it is this kind of like broad boogeyman term, but I think that in term, I think, I think that, that when we're talking about the introduction of private schools and charter school or the expansion of charter schools and private schools across the province, I think it is intentional not only just to weaken the the public education system, but also to weaken uh, weaken the role that the teachers unions or the Alberta Teachers Association plays in 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 the education system and the strength that they have. Now, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so my question to you, Michael, we so we've we've had like six or seven months of UCP government in this province. We had four years of NDP government, of New Democratic Party government in this province for the previous four years. Why didn't the NDP change the funding formula for private schools when they had the chance, right? I mean, public schools said, I believe, continue to, to receive the same funding now that they received under the NDP that they received under the PCs before them. So why, did, why do you think the NDP didn't change that? I have no idea. I think there were so many changes the NDP could have done. I think they're feeling that in a lot of different areas, just like with the election, election commissioner as well, too. I think it's... Uh, part of coming in as a government that did not expect to win and then they're focusing on a few key areas where they they think will they will uh will bring them electoral fortune in four years i think there was a very much low-hanging fruit here where they could have gone after the private schools private schools for example there's 15 of the most elite most expensive private schools mostly in calgary where they charge over ten thousand dollars a year tuition they're very very expensive and they're very elite and they don't let in like like, like they are these are these are the bastions of power and privilege in Calgary. And 
the NDP could have defunded them. It would have saved taxpayers $30 million. They could have taken that and put it into the school nutrition program, which I think was their same expenditure. So they could have doubled the investment into the school nutrition program and uh, defunded the elite 15 private schools. It would have let a lot of other private schools still remain. Uh, and um, I think the NDP were so afraid of being branded as, oh, you don't support choice, that they let themselves be branded as uh, not supporting choice. But it doesn't matter because I, I've, I've said this to the NDP on a number of occasions that these people will never vote for you. Many of these, like, you need to think about who your block is and who they are, just as... Um, uh, I think a lot of rank-and-file Calgarians support pipelines. We saw some polling that showed rank-and-file Calgarians do support pipelines. But you know what? They support more defunding private schools, especially especially mm -hmm. the wealthiest of the 15 private schools in Alberta. We could have taken that money, put it straight into school nutrition or something else. So I think it was one of those egregious miscalculations on the part of the NDP in, the, in their previous term. Maybe they didn't have time. Maybe they had some other reason. I don't know. I'm not... I'm not a, a privy to those sorts of conversations, but um, I think it's something even that the the UCP could look at because if they're serious about what was said in the beginning report, they could look at some kinds of privatization. And I've seen I've seen other um, other uh, education advocates suggesting, okay, if you want to move to privatization in education, we suggest that you start with actually privatizing the private schools. Take away that 70% subsidy that you're giving them. They don't need it. The McKinnon report asked the question, why is education in British Columbia 19% cheaper? It's because British Columbia, if you go to a Catholic school in British Columbia, of which 30-something percent of kids in Alberta do, you're effectively going to a private school and you have to pay tuition there. So, mm -hmm. private school, so in BC, private schools are, are private. They receive some subsidy. Catholic schools are also private and they receive some subsidy. So um, I don't know what the UCP will do if they're serious in their privatization agenda, how, what that will look like. It might be maybe they privatize the French immersion programs at different, at different school districts across Alberta. We don't know yet. Um, but I think in general, I think we need to... Uh, um, what the NDP did or didn't do, it's too late for that now. I think we as education advocates really need to think about going forward. What can we do to mobilize around the ideas of equity, around the ideas of a great school for all, around universal public education? No matter who your mom or your daddy is, you should have a wonderful, a wonderful public school uh, experience and how we can stop the cuts and roll that back. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think, I mean, the reason I asked the question about, uh, about the NDP was, I mean, I think it gives a, I mean, looking at the breakneck speed that the UCP has been uh, implementing their agenda over the past few months, um, it really gives you an idea of how quickly a government can make changes. And if there is another progressive government elected, whether it's NDP or another party, uh, elected in four years or eight years or 12 years or ever again, uh, I mean, it really gives you an opportunity. I mean, I think it it is an important reminder to advocates of public education, advocates of public health care, advocates of, of public services and the public good, uh, that you really need to push, uh, you really need to push and, and lobby and advocate uh, to that to that progressive government. That it's not enough just to have a progressive government. And sure the NDP did a lot of uh, did did a lot in their term and they didn't necessarily expect to form government until two two weeks before the election. But uh, I feel that over those four years there really was kind of a um, the 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 social movements that are that are that kind of surround the NDP kind of took a step back, and I think that the UC watching the UCP uh, implement their agenda so quickly and so furiously um, 
should, should be instructive to progressive groups and public education advocates in the future looking into education. Well, Jason Kenney warned us about this before the election. He said he's not interested in public consultation. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely been the fact in the education sector. Like we are, we are reeling with how quickly the government says, oh, by the way, we're interested in implementing this thing in two weeks from now. We'd like to consult you on it. The NDP were so committed to peace, order, and good governance and fair process and things that were, were not in their platform. They were so, they, they, they were so, um, uh, upset with doing things properly and fairly uh, compared to this government that you can see how um, things just things are just happening so quickly that pe like we're being consulted parents are being consulted they don't know where to go um, they're being exhausted by design I think it's meant to distract I think it's dead cat stuff and and I think the the uh, UCP clearly have an idea where they want to go and they don't care if the public's with them they feel they have a mandate they're moving quickly um, um, Many of the people I speak to say we want to write a letter to the minister, but what's the point? Does she does she even care? And even if she cares, does the premier even care? Feels like all decisions are made of the premier's office, and everything's moving so quickly that um, everybody else is just reading memos. All right, well, it's that time of the show where we open up our mailbag, and we've got uh, just a few questions here from listeners. The first one is Ty Guy eighty. Ty Guy eighty asks: Is Kenny putting forward? recall legislation. Michael actually mentioned it in some of his remarks in the last segment. But Dave, what do you know about recall legislation being brought forward? There is an MLA recall bill uh, put forward uh, or being debated in the legislature right now. Yeah. So thanks, uh, Ty Guy 80 for the question. Um, it's a recall. It's an MLA recall bill, which will basically allow um, members of the public to start a recall campaign, to recall their MLA. If they collect signatures, I think it's 40 percent of the of the registered voters in the ride of 40 percent of the registered voters in the riding this isn't a government bill though so this is something that the ucp talked about in their election platform but the bill is actually being introduced by mark smith who's the ml ucp mla for drayton daily devon uh and so he introduced it through a private member's bill it's a fairly high threshold in terms of because that's one of the first things people ask me is well is 40 percent enough 40 percent seems to be a fairly th high threshold and something that's probably going to be difficult for a lot of groups to get um the the concern i have with this bill is that it doesn't uh create doesn't seem to create to to have any limits in terms of third party organizations or political parties being involved especially during the petition collection portion uh, the signature collection portion of, of the recall process. Uh, so in, there's nothing stopping, for example, uh, uh, a group, an anti-NDP group or an anti-UCP group uh, from going out and collecting signatures and targeting MLAs who may have won by small margin. From what I understand, my reading of the legislation. Also, one thing that's different between this recall legislation and other recall legislation, for example, like the, the one that exists in the United Kingdom, the law that exists in the UK, is that and under this law in Alberta, anyone can start a recall petition for any reason they want. So they don't like the NDP, they can start a recall petition against the NDP, their local NDP MLA. In the United Kingdom, there's a specific three, basically three reasons why, uh, why a recall petition could be started. One of them is, has the MP been charged criminally? Uh, there was one, I think it's if your MP has basically been absent for a long period of time without any reason and like actual actual reasons why someone should probably be removed from office um 
my thoughts on this sounds this sounds as likely as meeting some guy in a walmart parking lot with a camper who says we're doing a petition and we're going to go to the <laughs> lieutenant governor and then something's going to happen and the queen's going to get involved well they they have recall legislation in british columbia so they 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 but it has it, it's it's fairly benign from what i understand it's not used it hasn't really been used since the early 2000s or the 1990s so it's recall is something that's kind of around and it's kind of a uh a uh uh a, a perennial issue in 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 right wing or conservative circles. Though interestingly, this is the eighth or ninth time that recall legislation has been debated in the legis Alberta legislature since the 1990s. And I think for the first like six times it was introduced, it was actually introduced by liberal MLAs. So the liberals used to be pro re MLA recall in the 1990s, and then the Wild Rose took over, kind of moved into the official posi opposition position and took over that mantle. So it looks like we're going to get recall. We actually used to have recall legislation for a very brief period of time in Alberta. From 1936 to 1937, uh, the social credit government uh, of William Aberhart had introduced recall until, and get this, until a successful recall petition was expected to be collected in William Aberhart's own writing. So then they, with, they withdrew the legislation and then they got rid of recall because it looked like the premier was going to be recalled. Michael, do you think that you would be able to effectively rally a group of people to recall certain key MLAs? I think it would be more important to, I think it would be more important to rally key people around the idea of a work to rule or some sort of a work stoppage, like a legal strike or some other piece like that too. I would, uh, I, I think that we're going to see labor not being distracted by these kinds of dead cats, so to speak. I think it's going to be um, more and more important that nurses, teachers, support staff, everybody else considered, continue to focus on making gains in the workplace because um, I, th I think that's only by effective checks and balances will you see kind of a, a kindler, gentler machine gun hand from the UCP. Okay, well, thanks for that question, Guy 80 Let's move on to our next one from Nicole Mooney. How do these cuts and attacks compare to those of the Klein years? I actually asked I actually asked a number of principals this week about that. I said, how many of you were teaching during Clears and House Compare? And they said, you know, during the Klein years, we were told we were going to have to forecast a 20% reduction. This is a uh, potentially a 10% reduction. So on the on the surface, the number appears to be not as bad. However, the classroom experience in a school today is so remarkably different. There are so many more special needs kids. The workload on a teacher having a program for 20 different types of kids, the, um, the, the burdens placed on the classroom teacher today are so much, uh, so much more um, uh, dire that actually the, the um, compounding effects are gonna make this just as bad as the Klein years for many, many, many people. I think what's different though is Klein, exactly as Dave said at the outset, Klein was just trying to balance the books. This government has a systemic hostility towards public institutions. Stephen Harper once said, there's no such thing as society, it's just a, uh, a collection of individuals, which I think he was paraphrasing Thatcher. And that's the same philos uh, philosophy that's governing this government's uh, agenda. On highways, they'd rather see um, private highways with user fees. Same thing with childcare. You want childcare, you pay for it yourself. You want public schools, you pay for it yourself. Same thing. So we're going to see just a, a enshrined and embedded um, uh, ideological hurdle that we have to overcome. And, and quite frankly, that's not what Albertans voted for. They never voted for Wexit. They never voted for a, a 
these these different distractions they they voted for a path to balance and and a sense of fairness and economic recovery and job recovery all we're seeing is a black friday announcement with almost 10,000 jobs lost in alberta dave how do these cuts compare as far as you recall well in in, in terms of the, when the klein cuts happened i mean we're really talking about the 1994 i think it's the 1993 94 95 or 94 95 budgets are really when when the uh, when the big uh, cuts to public services happened. So no, I was about 12 years old at that time. Um, so I was not working in politics at that point. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think that the, be, I mean, because I, you know, we, we kind of look back at history and, and I mean, I wasn't, I was there in the school. So, I mean, I saw, you know, you, you experienced the, the, the changes that happened and you experienced the cuts, the less teachers, the programs shutting down. Um, but in terms of the the cuts and attacks. I mean, I think the difference between, if I were to say the difference between this government and the and the previous government and the previous government in terms of the Klein government, uh, there seems to be a a kind of a, a mean spiritedness that go, that 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 is involved that that is kind of the mean spiritedness in the tone of this government when they talk about cutting public services and cut whether and and basically att attacking public sector workers um and i think if if i were to compare um and you know listeners who are around back in the those days can uh, can correct me if i'm wrong but I, th I think the tone is quite different i think and i think that has to do with uh with it being a much more ideological driven agenda in 2019 than it was in in uh, in in 1994, 1995. And I mean that in terms of, of a commitment to an ideological agenda. Can I ask for one second, and you might have seen something, but um, when the government announced that they're going to, you know, be cutting thousands of public sector jobs, many of which are housed in Edmonton, Edmonton Public could be looking at hundreds and hundreds of layoffs, Edmonton Catholic, all these other institutions. Um, from where I'm sitting, my question to you is this feels kind of like a direct attack on Edmonton. That could put Edmonton into a recession next year in terms of uh, lost jobs, lost purchasing power, um, you know, fewer people going to local restaurants, local everything. I think Edmonton's going to be decimated. So, did you guys see a, like a like a rally or a really animated response on behalf of our mayor and city councilors? Because um, we're a, if if this government's about to put us into a recession, I would I would expect that our city hall would be the first lighting their hair on fire. I, I haven't really seen anything. Um, I mean, I think I think City Hall in Edmonton has certainly taken a very diplomatic, at least publicly, a very diplomatic approach uh, to uh, to dealing with this government, and and it hasn't included rallying on the streets. Um, I think it was earlier this year. I want to. I think his name is Michael Rose. He's the chief economist for the city of Edmonton. Uh, released a report or his forecast, basically saying that if if there were major major cuts to public services, it could create uh, uh, trigger a mini recession here in the province or here in in the city of Edmonton, which is where we're where where we're all located today. You know, months before the provincial election, I met with a UCP MLA, and uh, as I frequently do, meet with with politicians and people from all political parties, um, and. The question that this MLA asked was about they're from another part of the province, and they were trying to understand the politics of Edmonton and understand why the UCP wasn't resonating as well. Basically, why does the NDP why is why was the NDP resonating better in Alberta in Edmonton than anywhere else in the province of Alberta? And and I mean, there are lots of reasons for why the politics of Edmonton are different. I mean, 
in the last election, I mean, Rachel Notley being from Edmonton, um, the the presence of, of, of more, I would say more social society groups, the presence of a large university, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, intensity, the, 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 the number of, of Edmontonians who are members of both private and public sector unions. Um, so there are a lot of reasons, but I mean, I, I, one of the, one of the, the, the things I, I, I said to them was when you talk about cutting public services, when you talk about cutting the size, laying off public sector workers and cutting the size of government, it, there are public sector workers across the province for sure in every community across the province but but it's there's certainly a, a larger concentration at edmonton because we are the provincial capital so when you talk about that cutting government when you talk about that to, to a crowd of, of of corporate employees in downtown calgary it's kind of an abstract thing but when you talk about that in a, to a crowd in edmonton it's a very it, it's a very different thing because a lot of those people will have will either be employed in the public sector or they're partners or spouses will be in, will, will be employed by the public sector or their brothers or sisters or their parents will or their neighbors will be so it's so it's a very different thing um, when uh, when talking about politics in Edmonton and, and and trying to figure out well why do these why do these political parties resonate in different parts of the provinces and why does Edmonton have this tradition of being known as Redmonton uh, when previously it was the NDP and previously it was liberals um, who dominated the city our last question comes from Lost and Curious, and this is about uh, what's happening federally. Uh, Lost and Curious wants to know, what's your opinion on Christia Friedland's new role? Is she getting set up for failure with this large complex file or positioned as the next possible liberal leader? Dave? Uh, this is a great question because we haven't even had a chance. There's so much that has happened uh, in federal politics since our last episode with the appointment of the new cabinet that we actually haven't asked, haven't even talked about it. So this is great. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in, in a future episode. But lost and curious, this one question, I think it is very interesting. Christia Freeland is kind of basically the minister, one of the most important cabinet ministers, the minister of everything almost. Um, she is responsible. She's a deputy prime minister. She is the minister of intergovernmental affairs. She's still dealing with the new NAFTA uh, agreement. She has a whole bunch of stuff on her plate. Um, I mean, yeah, it's large and complex. I mean, I get, I get the impression that she's an incredibly competent cabinet minister and, in, and uh, an incredibly competent political minister. Um, I think in particular for the federal government's relationship with Alberta, uh, appointing someone who isn't Justin Trudeau to come and talk to Jason Kenney and come and talk to Scott Moe about the, grie the grievances that the provincial governments have is probably a smart role because it probably smart move because it probably uh, decreases the temperature in the room by an order of magnitude of like a million, um, simply because the, the relationship between Jason Kenney and Justin Trudeau in particular is such a toxic relationship in this point at this point. So, I mean, I think it was a, a smart move whether, you know, whether she's going to fail at the role. I don't, I mean, that's politics and lots of stuff can happen. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if she becomes the next uh, to, to figure that to answer the, the second half of your question. I wouldn't be surprised if she becomes the next leader of the liberal party and possibly the next prime minister for better or worse. Michael, any comments on Christia Freeland's new role? No, I, I, I think that uh, um, it's a very positive step for Alberta. There might be some ways to make some gains there beyond the 
the the animosity between our premier and uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So I I think it could be a um, uh, a win win for both parties. But I think the bigger question that we're seeing in national uh, newspapers and other dialogue across Canada is is um, Alberta as they entrench further into Wexit and separatism. It's having Bill Monterey consequences to um, Alberta, and and so long as the Alberta government is not seen to be shutting this down and committed to the maple leaf. Um, we're going to see more and more um, real losses. Like we just heard about that tech company in Calgary that didn't want to locate to Calgary because of the fascination with separatism. Um, I think we really need our MLAs to to shut this down now um, because it's really going to hurt our ability to get pipelines, our ability to have an economic recovery, and our ability to reach out to the rest of Canada. We're all in this together. The oil sands wouldn't have happened without the rest of Canada inviting, investing in Canada too. We are all one province. We are all one country. I think we really need to, uh, in the spirit of being patriotic Canadians, we need our premier to shut all of this nonsense down as soon as possible. And hopefully Christian Freeland will be a part of that. Well, thanks for your answers, fellas, and thanks to everyone who uh, sent in a question this week. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping put the show together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at dayberta.ca. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.